While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace by day and by night with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what your teaching is that you are pre presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for, and for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we move and live and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thanks, Fran. Hey, everybody. You ready to roll? This is going to be a serious one. Um, Paul in Athens is one of the more famous passages in 
the book of Acts because, you know, it's like Christian guy in pagan central and secular central and just kind of going at it and sharing the gospel in that context, and it feels very triumphant and um, relevant. And I'm going to get into all that in just a second, but I want to start with just a second with something that might seem a little bit out of left field, but I promise it won't feel that way in a few minutes, and that is this. Just ask yourself this question. How do you act when you meet an, like an impressive person? So somebody's like kind of famous or just like they're kind of super smart or cool or I don't know what, but they're just kind of like impressive. Like, well, how do you, how do you react to that? And how do you respond to that? Because generally speaking, people's responses are pretty predictable, right? Usually there's two responses that you get with people. One is that just they enjoy being impressed. They're like, I'm such a fan. Like, you're so awesome. Um, or it's the wanting, they shift in this other gear where like they want to be impressive, right? So like this is somebody who's important and they're like, yeah, you're impressive, but so am I. <laughs> you know? So like there was a, a singer uh, that met, met Richard Nixon was like, so Dick, and just started talking to him and like all of his aides were like, oh, just because I'm as, I'm as important as you are, you know? Who cares? I'm, I'm impressive too. Um, sometimes people try to do both of those things at the same time, but that's generally what people do when they meet impressive people. When I first became a pastor at Lynn Haven, um, one of the things I had to learn about being a pastor with adults is like every once in a while as a pastor, you meet impressive people. And um, one of the worst things a pastor can do is enter in the kind of sycophancy that most people do when they meet impressive people. And so um, my pastoral mentor in Florida, Doug Pennington, said something like this in 2004. Um, he had just like, you know, prayed with, with the governor and he was like with Jeb Bush and all these people. And because a guy from our church had just become like the sheriff for Florida. And it was, he was just like, and I was like, so how do, what do you do with that kind of situation? And th he said something very similar to this. I checked this with him and he approved it. Um, he, Doug Pennington approved this message. That um, he said, it's our job to see them as human beings with all the similarities, conditions, hurts, experiences, and strangeness that make up each one of us. It's normal to be impressed by what is impressive about a person and vanity to try to impress them. But most importantly, you should always feel and treat their impressive qualities as secondary to who they really are and be available to them in the place everyone else ignores, but that Jesus sees their real humanity. Always remember, their most important, their most common place is their most important one. Now, what is true about people is actually also true about cultures and really true about anything else you ever come across at any time, in any place, in any way that's impressive, that makes an impression on you, and that tempts you to make an impression back on it. And that's true whether it's schoolmates or office mates, whether it's coworkers, whether it's people that can give you promotions or not, whether it's parents or kids or fellow parents at soccer games, or whether it's this like strange understanding of whatever American is, whatever you think that is. And that is that if you and I actually believe in Jesus, and we, we have actual substantive faith, and we want to live intentionally with Jesus' kingdom in mind, then what's going to happen is that Jesus—sorry, Jesus is going to actually dramatically affect the way we react and respond to the influences around us, everything that we find impressive. Well, it, the, the way you will have used to respond to anything impressive and the way you will respond to anything impressive as a growing Christian of substantive faith who really thinks about living intentionally for Jesus and who has the kingdom of God in mind rather than just the kingdom of man, 
you will, it will really deeply change the way you react and the way you respond to all those things around you. So you could restate Doug's quote this way. We will see our culture and the people in it with all the similarities, conditions, hurts, and experiences, and strangenesses that make us, that make up the real human experience. It's normal to be impressed with what's impressive about an impressive culture and vanity to try to impress them. But most importantly, you should always feel and treat the culture's impressive qualities as secondary to who we really are and react and respond to them in the place everyone else ignores but that Jesus sees their real humanity. Always remember, the most common place is the most important one. I think that's a good way to sum up. It's one of the things that we can learn in the macrocosm of this chapter. So let's do with react and then respond. In terms of react, um, how do, how do you—so your reaction and your response are different things, right? Your reaction is how it hits you, right? Your response is then what you're going to do to engage back with it, right? So if somebody says, you're a big dummy, right? First, there's like—that hits you in a certain way, right? Like you're kind of like, oh, that's right, you know? Like there's some kind of reaction that you have to that, like, how dare you? Or, yeah, I know, or, you know, some—you get some kind of person—and then, and then you respond back with something like, well, you're a big dummy, right? Or— or something like that. Like, why do you think that? Or let's talk about this. Or what are the criteria? F- What's the analytical criteria for dummy? You know, that kind of thing. So there's a reaction. There's what it does in you, it, which includes your, like your emotional response and how much adrenaline does or doesn't get released in your system, whether or not you see red instead of whatever's there, how, whether or not you throw punches or draw a gun or not or whatever. That's your re- kind of your reaction. And then your response is like, okay, given what I think, what am I going to do? Right? The response is hopefully—, hopefully more thoughtful if you have any actual personal self-control. So our reactions, Jesus should dramatically change our reactions to impressive things. Just the way we, rea- we react should be different. And you're like, well, Nick, you can't really control the way you react. Yes, you can. Because your reaction to things is partly based on what you believe about them. If you look at things in your life that you have changed your mind about in your life, you actually will find that your reaction to things really does change. Now, it might not be completely opposite, but it will change. Because your reactions are partly based on your fears that maybe come from your experiences, but it's also based on what you really believe those experiences mean, how they function, what they are. It comes as much from your convictions as anything else. And so— Believing in Jesus and allowing the truth of the gospel to get into everything we believe will change how we react to everything we interact with, including things that are impressive, right? Now, why do I think that? Because here's the thing. We are supposed to be ever increasingly impressed with Jesus, okay? Jesus is always the most impressive thing in the room. At any time, at any moment, in any place, with anybody, with any speech, with any video, whatever talent, however long, Jesus is always the most impressive thing in the room. And if you believe that, and if you feel that, it will change what you think the most impressive thing in the room is, and that will determine how you react to the second most impressive thing in the room, even if you think that's you. Right? So why do I think that this matters in Acts 15? Why am I not just giving you my opinion about impressive stuff? And that's because, um, you know, there was probably no more impressive place 
in the ancient world than Athens, even more than Ephesus and maybe probably even Rome. Rome had this impressiveness of imperial power, but Athens had it, Athens had it rolling on all levels, right? Um, in Greek cities, every Greek city just about had a, a Acropolis, Acropolis, that is, Polis City, Acra High, right? So almost all ancient cities were built upon some high ground that you could defend. And so most Greek cities, because, especially because Greek is super hilly, would be built around water and some kind of high thing. But Athens had a super awesome one. It goes straight up and then it is super flat on top. So you can build these huge temples on it and they had the coolest Acropolis high city of any of the Greek cities. And what they built on it was really awesome. The Acropolis, until some Turkish soldiers made an ammo depot out of it and it got blown up in like the 19-somethings, the Acropolis is super impressive. It's still kind of impressive. But just downhill from the top of the Acropolis that looked like this in the first century, there's a hill that's kind of halfway down. And that is what is referred to in this text as the Areopagus. The Ares Pogos. That is the hill of Ares. Ares is the god of war, right? In the Greek pantheon, when Roman, Romanized into Latin, Ares becomes— this, is, this isn't fun. Just to make you feel dumb. Mars, says the 13-year-olds. 14 probably now. Um, Mars, so have you ever heard of somebody talking about Paul on Mars Hill? Areopagos, the hill of the mountain of Ares, when Romanized becomes Mars Hill. And it was on this platform with the temple of Mars, that is the seat of authority. Mars is the god of war, the guy who can kill you. So the seat of authority is not up here with Athena, the god of wisdom, but down here with the god of war. And the Areopagus was not necessarily part of the high city, but it was, it was, they were the rulers, they were the high court of Athens, but unlike ours, they didn't have any kind of separation of church and state. They were kind of um, in the vein of, um, of Plato's Republic. That is, they were the guardians. That is, they ruled over everything. They not only said, no, you need to give this guy 18 cabbages back. They were actually allowed to say what you could and couldn't say, what you could and couldn't teach. They were the guardians of the philosophy and the morals of the people. That is, there's some biblical scholars that think when Paul is brought before the Areopagus, he's actually been arrested and is brought before the Areopagus to give his defense. I don't think that's a good interpretation. But the reason why people think that is because the Areopagus was not the philosophy department at lunch. It was the philosophy department with the political science department with AR-15s and body armor and tanks that got to decide who lived and who died, who had to drink hemlock and who didn't. That's who they were. And then below this was the largest agora or market anywhere. And when you'd walk through the agora, there were these 10 to 15 foot statues that towered above everywhere that you walked. It was said by one first century author that, that it was easier to find an idol or a statue in Athens than a human. Right? It was a really, really impressive city. In the Temple of Athena on the top of the Acropolis, there was a fully gold Athena. There was a fully not— not marble, but ivory, Athena, and a wooden one made of the rarest wood that the Greeks could find. Very exotic, right? And the, but they also, they weren't just like, oh yeah, we're cool. 
They laid claim to the profoundest intellectual history and cultural superiority that was known in the world at the time. When we talk about Roman—do we talk about just Roman history, generally speaking? Generally, we don't. We talk about what Roman history? We talk about Greco-Roman history, which is a little weird, right? The Romans conquered virtually everyone. They conquered Germania and Gaul and Hispania and Britannia and Persia and everywhere, but we don't talk about Persian Roman history, and we don't talk about Germanic Roman history or Saxon Roman history or Gaulish Roman history. We don't talk about that. We only talk about Greco-Roman history. Why is that? And it's because though Rome conquered Greece, historical scholars say Greece conquered Rome right back. That though by the sword, Rome overtook the city-states of Greece, Greece was so recognizably and so obviously culturally superior to Rome that Rome would always take something from the peoples they conquered and added it to their own culture. When they got to Greece, they just took flat everything and just said, oh, this will be our culture. And they just gave stuff Latin names. And so the Romans became the cultural slaves of the Greeks, but yet the Greeks were a vassal people. And so you can imagine their attitude. Yeah, this is a Roman province, but it's it's a Greek kingdom, right? And Athens laid claim to the philosophers of which modern philosophers often say all of philosophy is a footnote to Plato. And Athens claimed Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And so there was this, this enormous sense of impressiveness in the city. People came from all over the Roman Empire to Athens to see the city, to hear this. There'd be people speaking all over the place. You just walk through Athens, you could buy, like, like some kind of Greek pastry. I can't remember the super sweet one. I can't eat all of one right now. Baklava, that's it. And then you could turn around, and there'd be some guy just standing up there giving a speech about something. And you just walk through the city, and there were, there were Stoics and Epicureans and all kinds of different philosophical schools, and there were important people from all over the empire bringing their sort of promising sons to these guys and being like, I'll pay this much money for him to be in your school. And those transactions were happening all over the place in Athens. It was, it was like going to like Washington, D.C. with Boston's history with, I don't know, wherever the best philosophers are all put together. It's a totally, incredibly, culturally magnificent place in the eyes of Greco-Romans. And so most people had the three responses everybody has to super impressive things. One, I'm super impressed. Two, I'm super impressive, don't you think so? Or I've come here so that you can make me super impressive, right? It's like the people who graduate from undergrad and go right to Washington, D.C. to get a job. Right? Not that that's bad. Just saying. The whole idea is it's going to pay off. They're going to be made impressive in somebody's office so that in six years they can cash in, right? Or, or it's, it's what a lot of the rest of us commoners, our response is, I hate those smug people. Right? There was um, a writer in the first century, Chariton of, of Aphrodisias, who was, wrote this novel in the first century in which he puts in the mouth of a pirate what he really thought about the Athenians, which is this. Are you, so there's these people that are on, have come onto the pirate ship, and the pirate captain is talking to them. And he says, are you the only ones who have not heard about the busybodiness of the Athenians? 
The people are chatterboxes in a litigious bunch. And in the harbor, countless informers will ask who we are and from where we bring this freight, and wicked suspicion will lay hold of, the, hold of those malicious men. The Areopagus is right there, and its officials are more severe than tyrants. We ought to fear the Athenians more than the Syracusans, right? The Syracusans are like the most hated people possible, right? This would be like, we should, you know, we should be more angry than they're like the ISIS militants. And it's kind of interesting that he says they're worse than tyrants because the Areopagus saw themselves as the center of democracy. Freedom, openness. And he's like, yeah, freedom and openness, my behind. They're the worst tyrants in the entire empire. They're worse than Caesar himself, right? Which is a pretty normal response of people who can't access impressive people, right? Like, who, ha who hates UW the most, right? The people who had to go to University of Minnesota, right? I'm just kidding. That's a joke for Scott. <laughs> but like the people who didn't get in or like felt they didn't go to as good a— like they're like those—just a bunch of syncophantic, like— I'm better than you, idiot people, right? Those are the three, but here's the thing. That wasn't Paul's response at all. None, none of the three of them. He wasn't like, oh, you're so impressive, or oh, don't you find me impressive? Or I hate you, you're a bunch of jerks. Well, well, what Luke says is that when he really looked deeply at the city, he's, I mean, he saw impressive things for what they are, I'm sure. But he was— unimpressed by the city in terms of being thrown by its impressiveness. He was okay with not being found impressive by the Epicureans and the Stoics, but he cared deeply for the city. It says that, Luke says that his reaction, not his response, but his reaction when he spent time in the city was that he was deeply distressed because what he saw was a, a city full of false gods whether statues or philosophies. And remember, this is a guy who's supposed to be lying low, right? He just about got killed in two cities. They sent him to Athens to lie low, because who looks for people in Athens, right? And, and they, they get him there. He's by himself, and he goes, well, I'll go out and get some falafel. And, you know, he's just walking through the city, and he's like— and he gets more curious— and more grieved, and more curious, and more grieved, and he's walking through the city. He says he finds this altar to, a, to an unknown god somewhere in the city. He's like, somewhere, I was, I was walking through some side street, and I found this thing with an inscription on it that says, to an unknown god. We have no idea how prominent it was, but it wasn't, that wasn't, isn't recorded in people who went to Athens and recorded what the important temples were. And his response was, the more he was in the city, the more grieved he was. The more the more pain he felt, the more, the more he wanted to— and so he just started go out, going out and talking to people. He went into the Agora and talked to anybody who would listen, right? I don't have time for that. Um, but you could see, as you, as you move through this, one of the things you see is that— so Luke isn't here at this time, so Luke's account, we assume we get from Paul. And as Paul goes into, um, into Athens, he— like, he sees that Athens isn't what Athens thinks it is. And it's important that Christians, wherever they live, that they don't have stars in their eyes or whatever's great about their town. And by that, I don't mean we should be riding down our town. 
I don't think it's wise for Christians to be like, yeah, I live in Madison. It's seven miles surrounded by reality. And those people are these secular jerks. And they think Christians are idiots. And I think they're idiots. And like, Christians shouldn't talk like that. We should allow people to enjoy what is impressive about our city and about our people. We should, we should acknowledge that the UW is a great accomplishment and we have wonderful hospitals and it is a nice place to live and all these kinds of things. We just shouldn't be—I mean, we should be impressed and yet not impressed by them. We shouldn't ride them down. But what should be somewhat different about us is, is that we shouldn't have stars in our eyes and we should see the rot for what it is. And the way Luke describes Paul's description of Athens, you begin to see that from his perspective— there's a huge—Athens isn't what it was in the days of Plato. The great Athenian victories over the Persians, the great philosophies of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, that's 500 years ago almost. I mean, those are some pretty wilted laurels to be resting upon. But the present city was full of idols. It was full of Epicureans and Stoics, that is, cynics. Athens at this point was not in one of the flowerings of philosophy, but it was in one of the areas in which philosophy had been lost. That is, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle were interested in truth. Read any of their treatises. They're interested in truth. Even when Aristotle writes about things like ethics or politics, he starts with truth and works to ethics and politics. The Epicureans and Stoics didn't even believe there was such a thing as truth. The philosophy of Plato and Aristotle hadn't worked itself out. People were really disagreeing about it, and ultimately they didn't believe you could do anything with it. So better to turn our minds towards pragmatic things. And so the Epicureans and the Stoics were, were terrible rivals, but they agreed on one thing. It was no use talking about truth. People think that skepticism—it's so funny to listen to some of the modern, like, sort of rabid atheists—act as though the Enlightenment was the beginning of skepticism. The Stoics and the Epicureans in first century Greece are the second great age of skepticism in the history of the Greeks. There'd already been one, right? In the times of—if you go back further to Epimenides and some of these other guys who talked about what's the real nature of reality, they had tried to work that out and they'd kind of failed. And there'd already been this like 300-year period of terrible skepticism until Socrates and Plato's and Aristotle had arisen and come up with a new conception of truth that people could believe in. But when people couldn't believe it, there was too much—they couldn't work it out. They couldn't make it work. There was this dying of this cultural belief that we could believe in a truth, and so they had devolved again into skepticism. This happens over and over and over again in human culture. It's not like the, in the 1700s we sort of emerged from religion, and now we're skeptics, and it's part of the natural progress of human development. No, what happens is human societies have things they believe in, and when they stop believing in them, there is this vacuum— and in the midst of truth vacuums, new versions of Epicureans and Stoics arise. Epicureans who are the hedonists, whose philosophies, if it feels good, it is good. Life is about pleasure and avoiding pain, but let's just be smart about it. That was their philosophy. How do you maximize pleasure, minimize pain in the smartest way possible? That's a philosophy. It's not sheer hedonism. Let's get drunk and sleep with as many people as we can and do some heroin. They didn't believe that. They were like, no, because you'll end up with a small amount of pleasure ultimately. You'll get less and less out of it, and ultimately it'll kill you, and that's not the smartest way to do it. The smartest way to do it is this way. Pay us enough money and tuition, and we'll teach you. And the Stoics were just the opposite. I don't know if you've ever heard of that philosophy before. 
They don't call it Epicureanism now, but it's almost like they've been in our bookstores, right? So here's another philosophy, the Stoics, that we've never heard of before and aren't tempted to believe in at all. The Stoics believed in the philosophy of imperturbability, right? Which is clearly, right? It's perfectly obvious. The philosophy of imperturbability basically says this. You can't control what happens outside of you. You can't control the world. The only thing you can control is what goes on inside of you. So, life is about developing a rationality and emotional life and self-talk and the kinds of positive attitudes and things necessary so that nothing that comes at you from the outside can perturb you. And then you will end up maximally happy because you won't be thrown by anything. You'll have solidity. Things will be clear. You won't be able to be perturbed. You'll be stoic. You'll be strong. And your life will be good and you'll be happy. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard of that? Like, tell yourself the right stuff, be from the inside, you can't control, don't let other people control you, you've got to—never uh, heard of that. We've never heard of either of those philosophies, right? We are right now, culturally, in one of these—where we haven't risen to skepticism. We've lost a coherent shared worldview, and we've fallen into skepticism. You can always see it happening because as the elites get more skeptical, the masses get more gullible. And so in the day where atheists like to publish lots of books, you get 50,000 superhero movies and shows because everybody's looking for anything transcendent at all that they can feel something about. Right? When atheists rule the Areopagus, we don't all become atheists. We all become pagans. And Paul saw this. It was so obvious to him. He could stand at the Areopagus and listen to these guys talk skeptical rot, and then he could walk down into their city and be like, that's not what your people think. You guys are like, Areopagus, you're so smart. Just go down into your city. You can't trip and not bump your head on an idol of ivory. The people are awash in a million gods. And you're like, we're so smart, we don't believe in anything. You can see that they'd get to the point where it's not about whether or not you're telling the truth or arguing for the truth. It has more to do with how you say it. Is your talk slick enough? It's because the Stoics had given up on truth. What did they teach? The science of influence. That is rhetoric. And so that's all they cared about. It's like trying to impress a preacher with your sermon. (laughs) It's not going to happen. Right? Or the kind of intellectualism that isn't intellectual, where you think you've heard everything before, and so you're only listening to somebody long enough so you can label their view and put it in your little box of that view. So they listen to Paul talk about Jesus and about the God of the Bible and about that he's the creator and that he's providential, these kinds of things. They listen, they go, oh, I get this guy. I get this guy. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. And the other guy's like, oh, yeah. You you can see the, like, the nod. Oh, yes, that's—oh, that's right. Yeah, the foreign gods. Silly. Look at his silly beard. (sighs) Right? But you get this all the time. I mean, how many times have you talked about this, and you're, like, trying to explain something? Even if it's not your faith, it's just, like, an actual view, and somebody's like, oh, yeah, that's just conservatism, or that's just liberalism, or that's just—that's just analytic philosophy, or that's, like, a bad use of economics, or that's, that's just this, or just that, or I don't really have to listen to your view. I've got you. I've got this. I've got this. Whatever. Right? That is a sign of intellectual decline. That's a sign of rot. Hey, hey, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We're dismissive of anything we don't think is Christian. 
based on our own preset little things in our little Christian boxes. Because it's not, it's not something non-Christians do, it's something humans do, right? And then Luke's intentionally showing the vacuity. What did the people of Athens do? They did nothing but sit around and talk about the latest ideas. And so, if we aren't impressed by what's impressive, and we see where we are for what it is, that is what's most common is what's most important, we see our culture and our neighbors and ourselves first in light of their humanity and the relationship of that humanity to the Savior, something will happen where we will be able to see not just the rot of the city, and not just what we should fear for the future and lives of the people we're supposed to love that are our neighbors, but we will become less impressed with ourselves. We will see the common rot that we share. And we'll recognize what it is that Jesus thinks we need. And we can get back to Matthew 7 where Jesus says, first get the plank out of your eye, and then step to your neighbor and help him remove the sawdust from his eye. There's nothing worse than self-righteous Christians who are self-impressed, rabbiting on about how unimpressed they are with the city they live in, whose future and whose destiny they share. The second thing is, um, not just our reaction, but our response should be different. So yeah, when, when we come into the city and we see what's happening. We go to class and we hear what's being said and we listen to how people are reasoning through why our business should go in that direction. And as we hear advice about parenting and as we, we hear all these, we, these impressive people doing stuff and we aren't actually that impressed, we lose the adrenaline rush, we see them as human beings who are also impressive in a way, what also happens is we realize it's our job to respond thoughtfully, right? Not reactively. And when we recognize that, we should realize that Jesus should dramatically change our response to all impressive things. Our response, like how we not just passively react, but positively respond should be very different. What we do thoughtfully, decisively, and actionally with discipline over time because of our convictions should be really different than what they would have been before we really believed in and learned about Jesus and his ways, right? Because the more impressed we are with Jesus, the more it'll change both our reactions and our responses in such a way as we won't care less about our neighbor or our city or even ourselves, but more, but more in the right kinds of ways. Now, when we get to the point where you can really see Paul's response, like you can see his response a little bit in the first verses where he's grieved and then what does he do? The first thing he does is he, he goes out and he starts talking to people, right? He reasons with them, it says. There's no miracles, no miracles. He goes out and he just starts talking to people. Any, anybody who will listen, he talks to them. That's one response. But when we get to his speech in front of the Areopagus, you, we can learn in his speech, like, how he responds. And he wants to have a faithful response, right? A response that's faithful to Jesus. And he wants to embody both grace and truth. But he has to do it speaking and acting, right? And so the, the best way I can—I'm trying to summarize this so it'll be memorable so you can use this— is the words contextual witness. He has to be a contextual witness. 
You'll see this in our core values if you ever read High Point's core values. One of our core, core values is contextualization. We need to be, we need to live out the gospel for our Madisonian neighbors. And what and who they are and how they feel and how they think matters in how we embody the gospel to them, right? Um, Think about contextualization first in terms of just hospitality. How can I be gracious towards somebody else if I'm just going to be hospitable to them, right? And you could say it this way. Gracious hospitality means caring about your guests' conditions and feelings and then tailoring your actions as a host to make them feel welcome, comfortable, safe, and that they belong. Right? So I know people in Wisconsin— Lux and I didn't do this in Florida. But in Wisconsin, I've gone over to people's houses in the dead of winter, and when you walk in, they hand you a pair of slippers. Right? Because Wisconsin is different than Florida. Wisconsin in February is different than Wisconsin in June. And if you go over to somebody's house in February, you know, you've got nice, decently nice clothes on. You probably don't have wool clothes on because you're not going hiking. You probably sweated in your winter boots on the way to their house, and now you take off your boots because you don't get to get water all the floor, and you walk on their freezing tile floor, and your feet are freezing, and they know that. And so when you walk in, what do they do? They hand you a pair of slippers, right? When we have explored our house, especially in the winter months, the minute we transition into fall, we go from having like lemonade to apple cider with cinnamon in a crock pot. Why? Because things are—the context is changing. The experience people had just before they got there is different than it was two months ago, right? It's also—we have the meeting at 6.30, so we have substantive hors d'oeuvres because people may have come without dinner, and we know that, and we've thought through what their schedule would probably be like, and there's coffee because I'm going to be talking for like 68 minutes, and it's the only way they're going to make it through after being at work all day, Right? So we contextualize what happens on that five square feet of island, not on the basis of what foods I like or what drinks I like. I hate coffee. We do it on the basis of who's coming and what will achieve what we're there to do, which is to engage in hospitality, okay? Now, if your job is to be hospitable with the truth through grace, what would that look like? Right? It would look like something like, Understanding other people's thinking, what they assume, what they find believable, and why, and then hospitably welcoming them to the truth on the basis of that. So, for example, you could say, I'm having somebody over to my house. Somebody else is making the dinner. I can't change that. But I do have control over the lighting, how they come in, what hors d'oeuvres I serve, what seats we sit on, what room we eat in, what silverware we use, whether or not there are candles or wine or whatever. I have control over all that. And people's response to what goes on the plate in the main course could be very significantly different on the basis of how they've been treated and how it's been framed and all those kinds of things. Let me give you a, sim- a simple example that's related to the truth. Um, If you, if you were to share the gospel 15 times with 15 different people over the next month, how similar would each sharing of the gospel sound with each different person? Right? I mean, I, if I could, if I had recordings of the last 15 times I've shared the gospel, you, you they would be, they're almost unrecognizably different. Um, for example, a, a little while ago, I was, I was, um, 
uh, had, had this guy come over. He wanted to hear a little bit more about the gospel. And so one, I didn't meet him in my office. I met him at my home, and I met him in like my little man cave because he liked to fix things and do stuff, and he was into kinds of things that were, would be around us if we were in my man cave rather than my office. So instead of coming to my office and being around books he'd never read, he was in my basement around things that he thought were awesome, right? Just the room I picked, right? And then he was a mechanical engineer. So I didn't share the gospel through music. I wasn't like, well, have you ever played a piano? Right? I didn't do that. I was like, okay, you're a mechanical engineer, right? Okay, so what do you think? And then I asked him some questions about the gospel. He's kind of like explained around it, and he was like, yeah, I just don't understand that. I was like, okay. Imagine a system, sorry, that has a pressurization part that moves into another part of the system that moves everything, right? And the whole system is set up that way. There is a, like, a, there is a source of pressurization. You have a pressurization tank. He's like, yeah, sure. There's lots of stuff like that. Okay, great. I was like, okay, now imagine that there was a valve where you could shut off the pressurization tank from the rest of the machinery, but there was no pressure release valve of any kind, right? And let's say a worker that was working on the system shut that valve off. What would happen? He's like, well, it would, it would explode. I was like, right. And what would happen to the people that were in the room with it if it was a large instrument? She's like, he's like, they would probably be killed or maimed. Right. Okay, good. Okay, we're all on the same page here. Okay, now, human beings through sin have cut themselves off from God's divine purpose and his own creation for them. So God created humans and everything in the world and the world itself. He gave us a purpose in it and all of that. And through sin, we said no. God himself infuses strength, power, truth, goodness. He is himself in all things, in all of that. And when we close ourselves off from him, there's a right and appropriate pressure building of his wrath in response to that. And if we just go whatever, at some point, that blows, right? He's like, okay, I'm with you so far. I was like, okay, so how would we remedy this, right? He's like, well, you open the valve, okay? What if you can't open the valve? What if the people are like, we're not opening the valve? What if you could only do it if you were the designer? He's like, well, you'd have to create some kind of pressure release. It's the only way you could save their lives. Right. Right. Jesus is the pressure valve. You see, he is the way God has made that when we shut him off from the system and his rightful pressure of wrath increases and increases and ultimately comes to a point of judgment where it will explode and kill everyone, there is a means by which he has given to— Now, listen, every metaphor breaks down. The question is, can you get the person to the aha experience on the basis of what they already believe and things that they already know and things that are closer to them rather than far from them? Now, later on, we would sit down, we talked about other, other biblical metaphors for how the gospel works. And when you get four or five of them under your belt, you really start to understand how the gospel works. But for him, when I looked at him, I was drawing, because of course I'm drawing it too, because he's a dude and he's an engineer. So I'm drawing it, and then I'm letting him draw parts of it. And then I go, okay, do you see this? And the look on his faith was worth a lot of money. Like, it was really awesome. It was like a big hoagie. I mean, it, he was just like, I've heard, I've had religious people explain Christianity to me before. It has never made sense like this before. Now, listen, I, I recognize that not all of us can be like, can give the best hours of their day to like reading stuff and trying to know everything about everything so that when you run into everybody, you can share the gospel with them in some like very specialized, peculiar way. But listen— you can be curious, and curiosity can lead you to be perceptive. 
on some level, we can all do it, right? Richard John Newhouse once said, the secret to being universally interesting is to be universally interested, right? And if you really see God is the most interesting person in every room, and that all things belong to him and point back to him and from, come from him and are somehow related to them, then everything's interesting. And the minute you find everything and everybody interesting, you learn a lot. And that becomes a reservoir by which you can be perceptive about what's going on and perceptive about what another person believes in, how you need to frame it for them and what they can possibly receive. You don't have to have a degree in anything. You don't even have to be literate. You just have to be—want to be a contextualized witness, which would lead you to be curious and then perceptive and then clear. You can see this with Paul, right? He explicitly says—he says, As I studied your city, I found an altar to the unknown God. Right? He hadn't just studied the Greeks. He'd actually studied Athens. Do you think you get secular people? Do you think you understand people and families and problems, whatever? Okay, fine. Have you studied Madison? Have you paid attention to your neighborhood? Have you paid attention to the people in your profession, in your area? Have you—I mean, are you really paying attention to the actual place that you're in and what's different about it as well as similar to other things? And you see that he quotes their writers, and he actually knows the difference of what schools different people are from, because the first person he quotes is just a Greek philosopher. The second person he quotes is actually a Stoic philosopher. So he can turn to the Areopagus and say, one of your own poets said, we are his offspring. And then without quoting the Bible, he can turn around and say, so therefore you should have known that there is a God that God creates— that that God is providential and is in some sense our Father, which is sufficient for you to know that God exists and you should be thankful towards Him and you should respond with the kind of moral clarity that comes from the human conscience. And you haven't done any of those things. Never quotes the Bible. But because he he understood them, because he'd quoted their writers, and also he really understood their objections. If you look at his talk, he specifically deals with the four things they would most have a problem with in a biblical worldview, right? He knows that as Greeks, one, they believe that if there is a God at all, there are kind of many. There's certainly not one all-powerful, clear one. They don't believe in a divine judgment, They think it's laughable because everybody just dies and goes to Tartarus. Everybody pays the same two coins to get across the river Styx, and everybody's a shade or shadow for all eternity. The only eternal life, says Achilles, is in fame. Have you ever heard that worldview? Or people who live like that's their worldview? They don't believe natural revelation is clear. That's why they're skeptics. And they certainly don't believe that there's a special revelation of a Jewish carpenter who came back from the dead who will judge all people at God's appointed time because he was resurrected. (laughs) They they certainly don't believe that, especially in relationship to resurrection. Because everywhere in Greek literature where we have found where resurrection is referred to, it's referred to as crazy. Like, that could never happen, and it never does happen. And so the, the concept that a human being under the gods could, would come back to life in any situation, in any way, under any circumstances, it's crazy. Achilles didn't come back from the dead, right? Hercules is the only one who is said to have come back in, in, from Tartarus, but who never died. And yet, it's very easy 
to be so sensitive to the context in which we, we want to understand from people that we actually aren't contextualized witnesses. We aren't contextualized witnesses. We're just contextualized, which means coward, ultimately. At some point, it's, and it's not your job necessarily to prove. A witness is a herald. It's somebody who tells news that something is a certain state of affairs. Look, I, it's not my job. It's not, so we, you open your phone app. It's not CNN or Fox News or whoever's job to prove to you that people took guns into a, into a theater in Paris. It's just their job to tell you. And if you don't believe them, you can go find out. You can go look for more evidence. But it's, and it's not their job to prove it. It's their job to tell you. And that's what a witness is, or a herald. That's what the word preaching actually means. It means to herald something. It means to tell people that something is the case. And then it is really up to them or others, or you to the extent to which you can help, perhaps to offer evidence. But it's not your job to prove it. It's your job to share it and to tell it, and then to try to go from there. Does that make sense? And it, it's supposed to include— one of the things you'll notice in, in what Paul says is that he actually— well, the reason we know that he's dealing with these four Greek doubts isn't because he coddles them. It's because he directly contradicts them. In his speech, he doesn't say, look, I know you believe these things, and they're probably right, but I have this other perspective. And he kind of says, okay, listen, I'm going to come after everything you believe. I'm actually going to prove that you don't even believe what you say you do from your own philosophers and prophets. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And he gets to the point— let me give you an example of where this goes wrong. Right? Have you ever heard somebody say, and if you've ever said this, I'm not personally attacking you, okay? But have you ever heard somebody say, listen, you can't argue with people. I mean, just telling people is, the thing that really Mr. Pete is your testimony, your story, right? Okay, that is not very contextualized thinking, right? Who would listen to your testimony? For whom is that what they need to hear? Is it everybody? People love stories, Nick. People love stories. Then your testimony's a story. Right? I mean, I've heard people say, there's no use in doing anything but just telling your story about how God changed you. Yeah, right. Except if the person thinks you're an idiot, you've actually just vaccinated them away from that. They're like, oh, that's how you became an idiot. I got it. No Jesus for me. Right? Because what you're saying is, Jesus changed me. Right? I was this. That Jesus happened, and now I'm this. That only works if you are a compelling human being. Like a minute you open your mouth and give your testimony, you are assuming they respect you. You're assuming that like being like you wouldn't be a bad thing. They like the human being that you are. And so when you tell them what happened to you, that you became that person, they'll be like, whoa, even if you're not cool like them, but you're, they at least have to believe you're profoundly different than you were. So whatever effect Jesus would have on them would be at least positive, because the effect on you has been positive. Even if you're still kind of an idiot, you're not as big a one. The whole, the whole context of testimony assumes the testifier has credibility. 
Tell me how many Christians are like, well, I'm just going to share my testimony with this waitress. Well, yeah, the waitress is going to think you're self-important. Why would you be telling her your story? Why would she be interested? Right? After you leave her like a 140% tip and she chases you out of the parking lot, then you can tell her your testimony if she shows up. Right? Or you've been to that restaurant 70 times. And you've been nice to her every time, even on her worst day, and when she was totally, like, harried by what's going on with her kids and what's happening. She can't make ends meet. She's frustrated. And her life isn't going anywhere. And her boyfriend's an idiot. And she's on her fourth one in the last six months. And, you, and you're like, okay, forget about my order. Are you okay? And you're the only person in the last 470 customers that seem to have any idea that she was a human, right? And even if all you can say is, Man, I'm really sorry things are going terrible. Oh, man. Then maybe later, she might listen to your testimony. You understand? But context assumes you know what fits. And ultimately, what fits has to be the truth. At some point, you've got to deliver dinner. I don't care what silverware or plates you're using. You can pick the most expensive wine that you got from Napa, and ultimately that pot roast has to land on a plate because that is what you're serving. You're serving Jesus. And if you're not serving Jesus, you are not a faithful witness in any meaningful definition. You cannot serve grace and not truth. Ultimately, you have to get to what Paul gets to. He's like, listen, I love you guys. You're so religious. You're interested. I'm here. We're talking. This is great. Okay, your worldview is really screwed up. There is one God, not many or none. He created everything, like you already know. You know that he's there. You know that you're accountable to him. You know that he's providential. And he actually is providential in a way that if you had really been reaching out for him, you would have found him. But you didn't because you weren't. And that God now—and notice this. You know, have you ever been in a church where they give the invitation, right? So, like, I could get to the end of a sermon here, which hopefully we're close to the end, right? And say, well, we've been talking about Jesus. I hope he's touched your heart. Do you feel something? Do you feel something in there? I hope Jesus has touched your heart. I hope something's happening. you like, that you want to believe in Jesus. I want to invite you. I want to invite you to consider putting your trust in him as Savior and Lord. Well, maybe just Savior. And you could, you could say that you believe in him. You could even come down here to the front and people with name tags that we've printed that you don't know will pray for you. And, right, the invitation, right? Is that what Paul does? Right? He gets this. He, he goes, he's like, listen, listen, listen. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he—what's the word? Now he—does anybody remember it? He commands, is what the text actually says. But now, he commands every person everywhere. <laughs> you like those phrases? In the past, you overlooked such a signature. Whatever you've done before today, okay? You're still alive, right? Clearly, God has overlooked whatever ignorance we've lived in, right? But now, he commands everyone, everywhere to repent. That is, unqualifiedly 
release our rejection of Jesus in every form, every idol, whether statuesque, personal pursuit, or personal philosophy, and to turn to Christ, the one who is both judge and savior in unconditional faith. Right? He says, because this Jesus, who is that judge, has risen from the dead. He's been resurrected. He is alive, whether you believe in resurrection or not. And listen, there were people in the first century that found that preposterous. And there were people in the first century that believed. And there are people in the 21st century that find that preposterous. And there are people in the 21st century that believe. But I'm—it's not my job to give an invitation. It's my job to tell you that God commands as the, your rightful judge that you repent. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, that looks like repenting. That is turning away from whatever your blockage is. Whatever you're like, I don't believe in Jesus. Whatever, I'm, I'm doing these things. It's time to be like, no, guys believe in God. Right? No, that pursuit, that's really not what your life is for. No, protecting these kind of sins that you like to do, that's not okay. No, you, Jesus will deal with that stuff. We, we're gonna, but you need to turn from that and to Jesus, Right? It's the same message he's laid on, but you see how ultimately what the apostle is doing here is he's recognizing that it's not just his job to be contextual, it's his job to be a witness to. And that only when those come together do we really begin to understand what we're here for, what we're here to do. And you, that can only happen when you aren't impressed with what's impressive, when you're not trying to be impressive, and you're not busy hating whoever's impressive. But when you have the same reaction that Jesus put in Paul, he starts to put in you, that there's deep distress, and that not, that's not just your reaction, you have a response, and that response is wanting to act like Jesus would in that context by being a contextual witness. Not just a witness, and not just contextual, but being both. And when that happens, not only are we more realistic and faithful in how we see everybody in our life, whether the city as like a macrocosm or whether our neighbors or people around us for who they really are in their humanity rather than what they project about themselves, trying to be impressive, but it, it, it will come home to roost. Everything I see in you and in you and in you and in you and in you, I will be drawn through not being impressed, but seeing your human state, recognizing that what you are, I share, all those things come home to roost to me. And it becomes terrifyingly humiliating. And I get to see who I really am, but it's okay because the impressive person in the room was always supposed to be who? It was always supposed to be Jesus. It was never supposed to be me. And it's enormously liberating. And one of the greatest strengths isn't in perturbability nor the radical seeking of pleasure. One of the greatest liberties any human can experience is humility. And that we can actually be impressed with Jesus. He's the one who's impressive. He's the only one that's going to make us impressive in any non-idiotic way. And we don't have to hate him for being impressive because he's our God, he's our creator, and he loves us. So we don't have to be angry that he's awesome. And only that will radically change the way we react and respond to everything impressive in our lives. Especially 
the thing we think is the most impressive, which is us. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray now that you would help us to be people who, like the apostle, have been so transformed by Jesus that we intuitively and strongly lose our impressedness with ourselves, with the, with the shows and the faces people put on to cover up their humanity, with the people who are actually impressive all around us, whether of fame or competence or ability, whether it is the city that we see as we, us wanting its affirmation or wanting it to find us impressive or us wanting to hate it because it won't accept us. But we pray that you'd make us a people that when human beings are broken, that we feel a deep distress in our reaction and that we are drawn to respond as contextualized witnesses, faithful in what we're called to do loving people where they are and drawing them to the truth that you have shown in the gospel. And I pray that everybody here would, would see that that's not just an invitation. That you command, you command all people everywhere to repent. And we pray that through that you would produce humility in us so that when we go out, the truth that we share would be contextualized and compelling.